This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our reading of scripture this morning comes from Genesis chapter 12. Continuing on our series in the book of Genesis, picking up where we left off last week in Genesis 12. This week we'll be looking at verse 10 through the end of the chapter in verse 20. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, and she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that by your spirit, you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to receive it. As we look at this account of Abram's fear and the sin that it produced, I pray that by your Spirit you would give us the courage and the strength to do what is right. And most of all, I pray that through this text you would point us to your faithfulness, to your covenant, and to the salvation that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Fear causes people to do strange things. Fear causes us to not think clearly, not act consistent with our regular character, our regular personalities. One of my favorite lines from a fictional work is from the novel Dune. Fear is the mind killer. Fear causes us to not think. It causes us to do things we normally would not, to believe and accept things that are not true. 
just as one example of how this works, fear triggers the fight or flight response where people that who normally would be calm and docile, they turn violent. Or people who would normally seem brave and composed shrink and disappear. Most of all, as God's people, fear can cause us to doubt God's goodness, God's faithfulness, and God's promises to us. We have talked much as we've looked at the book of Genesis about how the desire to be like God and the desire to reach God stands at the root of all sin. But another tool in our enemy's toolbox that he will often deploy to try to get us to turn aside from God's will and God's ways is fear. This is not a new problem. We will see that fear and cowardice will profoundly impact one of the men who is most often held up as one of the greatest heroes of the faith, this man, Abram. Last week, we began to look at the life and times of Abram. We see that God appeared to Abram and made promises to him and his descendants that he would have enough descendants to constitute a nation that would bless all other nations. He promised Abram a land that For now, he only experienced as a stranger and a sojourner. But these are God's perfect, immutable, unfailing, unchangeable promises to Abram, and by extension to all his people, united to him in Christ by faith. But fear causes even Abram to turn aside from God's promises and resort to his own unsound thoughts, actions, and beliefs. So we will look at Abram's fear and how it poses a threat to the promise today in this text in Genesis 12. We will see three points today. First, we see fear in verses 10 through 13, where this all starts. We will see Abram is afraid. We'll see why he's afraid and what this provokes him to believe and to do, which is false and sinful and untrue. Second, we see fraud In verses 14 through 16, Abram will not only live according to this lie, but he will prosper and he will profit because of this fear-induced lie. And third, we see fallout in verses 17 through 20. Abram's sins are found out and must be reckoned with. So again, we have fear, fraud, and fallout. So first we look at fear in verses 10 through 13. We learn that sometime after Abram and Sarai and all those with them came to Canaan, there was a famine. Now, this was not something entirely rare or unexpected in that area. The land of Canaan, which we would now know mostly as Israel, is a Mediterranean climate. If you look at it on a map, you'll notice that it is surrounded on one side by the Mediterranean Sea, and then it is surrounded on the other three sides by desert. Even Israel itself, while it is not a desert, it's relatively warm and dry. There's enough water from the Jordan River and from other sources to prevent the land from becoming a desert. But if that water is ever short, then this land does not get a lot of rain naturally. And so these cycles of famine can and do happen. And we see that this happens here. Other times throughout Genesis and other times in the Bible, famine will strike the land. Now, Abram was a sojourner, 
And he was also a keeper of livestock. He needs to be where there's grass. He needs to be where there's food and water for his animals, as well as for himself and the other people. He doesn't own any land of his own. He's essentially wandering and foraging. He's dependent on what grows in the wild. And in a drought year in Israel, there's not going to be enough to go around. So a famine that affects the whole land means that Abram has to go somewhere else that the famine is not affecting. And so he decides to go south and west into Egypt. Now this is the first interaction that we see between God's people and the land of Egypt. It will be something of a recurring pattern throughout Scripture. It will be, of course, later that Jacob and his family, because of the famine in the land then and the providential ascent of Joseph to a ruling position in Egypt, they will go there and multiply and dwell there. In fact, the people of Israel at that time, they'll be in Egypt for 400 years. And during that time, they will be enslaved until God, through Moses, miraculously delivers them and judges Egypt. But also later on, for instance, at the time of the exile, in the time of the prophet Jeremiah, people from Israel try to escape the calamity by going to Egypt. They are urged by God not to, and they end up being judged for doing that. But once again, you have a flight to Egypt. And then finally, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ as a child will be taken to Egypt by his parents to avoid Herod's murderous decree to kill all of the infant boys of Israel. We start to see one of these recurring patterns in Scripture that ultimately point us to a fulfillment in Christ. But it is at this time of going to Egypt that Abram has to reckon with his fear. We see this beginning in verse 11. Abram recognizes that his wife Sarai is a beautiful woman. A good problem to have, but a problem for reasons that we will see. Abram is concerned that because Sarai is a beautiful woman, that when they go into Egypt, this strange land where they don't know anybody and they don't have any support, She will get the wrong kind of attention from other men, and particularly powerful men who have the desire and the means to kill Abram to get him out of the way. Now, it's not an entirely illegitimate concern. Men have killed for less. So Abram hatches his scheme. He tells Sarai to no longer claim to be his wife during their time in Egypt, but to say that she is his sister. Now, this is a half-truth. It comes up later in Genesis chapter 20 that Abram and Sarai are, in fact, half-siblings. They shared a common father. In this time, in the foundation of the world, marriage of such close relatives was normal and common. It would later be a problem. In fact, later it would be explicitly forbidden in the Mosaic Law. As the world became more populated, there was a need to separate family lines, separate genetics more, uh, to remove this marriage between close relatives. But at the time of Abram, it was still going on, and it was still common. So for now, it was true that Abram and Sarai, they were at least half-siblings. There is a half-truth that Abram is seeking to use here. But the intent behind it is deceptive. By emphasizing the familial relationship, they are conveniently neglecting the marital relationship such that another man might be inclined, might be enticed 
to take Sarai as his own. Now, why would Abram do this? He has just received the promise of God that he would have descendants to constitute a great nation. So clearly he had an interest in preserving his own life, but he is not trusting that God will preserve his life without resorting to such desperate and sinful means. Abram's fear has caused, it, has caused him to turn to something terrible, something horrifying. He's actually willing to potentially let some other man take his wife because of his fear for his own life and safety. Now, John Calvin commenting on this passage, he's a little nicer to Abram than I am. He says that Abram, while still being fearful and being sinful by doing what he does, he's at least acting from some place of prudence in desiring to preserve his life. Just wrong in how he does it. I'm more inclined to see this as just pure cowardice. There, there's really nothing that would justify putting one's wife in such a situation. Um, I don't really see that much mitigation here. And we see here that Abram, father of the faith, and often held up as an exemplar of the faith, he went through rather serious seasons of doubt and disobedience. He had heard the voice of God. He had heard these great promises to him that would surely come to pass. Maybe he thought this could or would happen apart from his wife, Sarai. In fact, this seems reflected in his later actions. For instance, when he has a child by Hagar, Sarai's servant, the son Ishmael. But either way, Abram is doing a despicable thing out of fear. Would he now go to Egypt only to find that God's promises to him would fail? That he would die at the hands of some jealous man who wanted his wife? And it's easy for us to pile on Abram for doing this, but we are all prone to doubts. We are all prone to fear. And we are all prone to that fear leading us to sin. When we go through seasons of hardship and in difficulty in this life, we can start to wonder if God is going to keep his promises to us. We probably maintain in our heads, we think that he will, but the hardest gap to bridge is that 18 inches from our heads to our hearts. We actually believe and hope and act consistently with that belief and hope. So we have seen Abram in this strange plan that he has concocted out of fear. But what comes next? Well, after fear, we see fraud in verses 14 through 16. So in verse 14, Abram and Sarai come to Egypt to wait out the famine. And of course, this predictable outcome happens. The Egyptians see Sarai and they see that she is a very beautiful woman. And it's not just the general population. We see that the princes, the officials of the court of Pharaoh, also notice and bring this fact to Pharaoh's attention. And Pharaoh does what Pharaoh would do when he becomes aware of such a beautiful, and as far as he would know, based on Abram's deception, single woman. He takes her into his house. He intends to make her part of his harem, part of his collection of wives. Though polygamy was never morally right, you can think back to Genesis 1 and 2 and God's design for marriage between one man and one woman, polygamy was widely practiced in the ancient world, 
especially by men of wealth and influence, and especially kings like this Pharaoh in Egypt. Not only does Abram enable and allow this and go along with it, but he seems to profit from it. As the brother to Pharaoh's new favorite about-to-be-wife, Abram is rewarded with property. We read here that he gets all kinds of animals, even servants. He gets a king's bounty. Now, in a certain qualified way, this is God's providence for Abram's good. Though Abram has done a sinful deed to acquire these wealth and these possessions, in a way, God is still using this to bless and enlarge Abram. Of course, it comes at a great cost. The greatest of human costs, perhaps. What good is wealth and animals and possessions if you lose your beloved? While Abram is now a made man in Egypt, one could imagine there being a certain sorrow and emptiness of his soul that comes with it. He got all of these things, but what did he lose? Not only has Abram done this treachery and is essentially using it to defraud Pharaoh out of his possessions, but in a real sense, he has despised God's covenant blessings. God's purpose was to multiply Abram into a great nation. And how would God intend this to happen? Well, how did God intend for man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Through the one man, one woman, one flesh union of monogamous lifelong marriage. This is not the first time where Abram will try to do something outside of that to try to accomplish these purposes. In fact, this very same trick he plays here where he claims to a king that Sarai is his sister, he will do it later in chapter 20 to a different king in a different land. Abram will end up fathering other children by other women. What we see in Abram is not always a paragon of virtue, an example, someone we can hold up and say, let's be like him. We see a man who believed God, but his belief was often shaken, and that shaking often led him into sin. Now this should inform us as we think about our sanctification. We do not come to Christ and suddenly we're done with sin forever. We're not sinless perfectionists like some strands of Arminians, believing that once we are Christians, we can live perfectly and without sin. We will deal with sin all throughout our earthly lives. Though as we live, as we are united to Christ, we are more and more conformed anew into the image of Christ and true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, we never completely arrive in this life. Our confession puts it well in chapter 13, sections 2 and 3. It says, This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome, 
And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We are truly sanctified. We grow in grace, but we are never free completely of sin and faltering and failing in this life. What was true of Abram is true of us. We look at this sin he commits, and in fact, it is a sin he will commit repeatedly. We can be inclined to look down our noses at him. I can't believe he would do that. I would never do that. Well, we're no better. We may not hand our spouse over to someone else, but we all have this continual war with sin inside of us. But praise be to God, he is faithful even when we are faithless. This brings us to our third and final point, the fallout in verses 17 through 20. Abram's faithlessness brings consequences from God's hand. Though they are consequences that God uses to preserve his covenant plans and purposes, even as Abram has seemingly abandoned them. We see that the Lord struck Pharaoh's house with plagues. We're not told specifically what these plagues are. We could perhaps get some ideas as to what these plagues were based on how God deals with other similar situations. In Genesis 20, where Abram pulls this same trick again with King Abimelech of the Philistines, God actually appeared to Abimelech in a dream and told him that he was going to die if he did not remedy the situation. In fact, Abraham's son and heir, Isaac, does the same thing with his wife in Genesis 26 to another Abimelech. He gets caught. He's seen showing affection to his wife, and they realize, oh, she's not just his sister. We can think of the plagues later done in Egypt in Exodus to show what kind of plague God might inflict, or we can think of something we recently saw in 1 Samuel when the Philistines profaned God's ark and God struck them with boils, with tumors, and with rodent infestations. Some kind of plague struck Pharaoh's house that it was bad enough to get his attention and to realize the source of it. Whatever these plagues are, though, it is worth noting that these plagues come for Pharaoh's house, even though as far as Pharaoh knows, he has not done anything wrong. Pharaoh thought that Abram was Sarai's brother, and Sarai was thus eligible to be his wife. But in God's eyes, this does not excuse the sin. Had Pharaoh made Sarai his wife, he would have been committing adultery, and thus liable to God's punishment for it. What God has joined between Abram and Sarai cannot be separated even by treachery or ignorance. What this episode also shows us is the severity and pervasiveness of sin. When we sin, we like to turn into defense attorneys for ourselves. Well, yeah, I sinned, but I didn't know. Or, I sinned, but it wasn't that bad. It was just a little sin. Well, here we see God pouring out plagues, pouring out judgment on someone who by all accounts did not even know that he was sinning. I mentioned before that some are sinless perfectionists, believing that once we're in Christ, we can live our lives free from sin. 
Well, this text puts the lie to that. Sin is everywhere, and it is so everywhere that we can't even avoid it often when we think that we are. But these plagues are not merely to punish Pharaoh. They're also to preserve the covenant. Just as we saw before, back in 1 Samuel, how God would act alone to judge the Philistines even when no one else was there on his behalf, so too God will act to preserve his plan and his means for carrying out his covenant promises to Abram. Even if Abram's not going to lift a finger to do it. Even if Abram abdicates his responsibilities, and for all intents and purposes, it seems Sarai is going along as well, God will intervene to preserve his promises and to protect his people. Even if no one else seems interested. And in doing this and sending these plagues, God gets Pharaoh's attention. We see that in verse 18, Pharaoh calls Abram and righteously rebukes him for what has happened. What is this you have done to me? Abram has not only sinned against God, but against Pharaoh by placing a stumbling block into sin in front of him. A sin that we learn Pharaoh would not have indulged on his own. He says, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say... She is my sister. I might have taken her as my wife. In other words, Abram's fears that ignited this whole situation were unfounded. They were irrational. Pharaoh had no intention of taking someone else's wife to be his own. Even he, a pagan king of a pagan land, knew that doing such a thing was evil. Enough of God's law was left written on his heart that he knew that this sort of thing was not to be done. Had Pharaoh known that Sarai was Abram's wife, this whole situation could have been avoided. See, sometimes we sin because we think that by sinning we can make things easier and better for ourselves. Maybe we think it's better to lie, to cover up scandal, or to protect ourselves or our reputations or that of others. Maybe we think our sins don't affect anyone else, and so they're not as severe as sins that affect other people directly. Friends, sin never makes anything better, ultimately. Sinning is never preferable to not sinning. Now Pharaoh, being the king that he was, and given the treachery that has been done against him, actually seems to offer a rather generous and restrained response once the truth comes out. Remember, he's the king. He could decide that this would be a good time to relieve Abram of his head for his fraud and deception. At the very least, he could have demanded that Abram return the property to Pharaoh that he had essentially defrauded him of on these false pretenses, the animals and the servants and the money. But Pharaoh... Doesn't either. He merely sends Abram and Sarai and their possessions on their way. Ironically, providentially, though Abram has sinned, God ultimately uses this for his own glory and the good of his people. God essentially plunders the Egyptians on behalf of Abram, even using Abram's treachery as a means to do it. Abram increases in wealth and prosperity. 
is better able to withstand the famine and to prosper in what he does. Though Abram was faithless, God remained faithful to him. Though Abram despised the covenant and God's appointed means to carry out the covenant for a time, God insisted that his covenant be kept, even as Abram himself was a sinful and unworthy bearer of the covenant blessings. And this is what is most important to us. Our God remains faithful to his promises. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Though we are often faithless, doubting, sinning, forgetting and forsaking what God has done for us, he remains faithful. He does not lose his people. His purposes cannot be thwarted. His covenant of grace with his elect people cannot and will not be broken because God cannot deny himself. His salvation and preservation of his people does not rest on them. It rests on him. Namely, our salvation rests not on ourselves, not on our works, not on our efforts and our maintenance of standards of faithfulness, but on the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, like Abram, sojourned on the earth. He walked on this earth. Even as I mentioned before, at one point he had to flee for his life to Egypt. But unlike Abram, Jesus did this without sin. He kept the law perfectly on our behalf. We could never do that. We never have done that. We're not doing that even now. Jesus was a stranger. He was despised. He was rejected by men. We've been in the evenings looking at the Gospel of John and seeing just how that rejection plays out, all the resistance, all the difficulty, all the abandonment that Jesus experiences. He suffered all the miseries of this life. Pain, weakness, loss, sorrow, and most of all, he suffered the cursed death of the cross to pay the penalty due for our sins. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And this righteousness alone, not our works, not our faithfulness, not our obedience, not anything else can be the basis for our justification, our life, our salvation. And this is why sinful Abram could be saved, why God remained faithful to him despite sin. Because Christ though even in the Old Testament, through types and shadows, was Abram's hope in salvation. And Christ is our hope of salvation, our only hope of salvation today. Do you have this hope? Christ has called us to repent of our sins and believe in him for forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. To those who belong to him, he is faithful even when they are faithless. He is righteousness to the unrighteous, hope to the hopeless. And so that is the question. Do you have this salvation today? 
Are you trusting in Christ for your righteousness? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you have poured out on sinners. As we see here in Abram, even when he was faithless, even when he despised and shied away from your covenant blessings, even when he fell into sin, you were faithful to him. And we praise you and we thank you that you are so faithful to your people. I pray that all here gathered would believe this truth, this truth of the gospel, that Christ is our righteousness. And I pray that in light of this, we being sanctified by your spirit would walk in more and more in true righteousness and holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.